We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash stronger. ZocDoc.com slash stronger. On today's episode of Mentally Stronger. So one thing you said in there that I want to back up to for a second is, did you say you still don't know what you want to do? I don't. No. No idea. So I think a lot of people would be surprised, like, yeah, but you just wrote this book called Career on Course, and you're telling us you you don't know what you want to do. Talk about that. Yeah, I'm very comfortable saying that, right? So I went to school and got an undergraduate education and communications, and then I worked for the Walt Disney Company as a project manager, and then they let me go. And then so I moved to the Franklin Covey Company, the world's largest leadership firm, and started selling and then sales management and then marketing and then the CMO and then the EVP of thought leadership. And then I opened a podcast and wrote an ink column. And now I've written seven books and I'm now a talent agent. Mike, the company I own, it actually is a literary speaking and talent agent. Now you might say, well, all that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you went through sales and sales leadership and marketing and product development and podcasting and radio and columnist. I mean, it's not like I was an organic gardener. So it was all kind of in the same space. But I don't, I don't, to this day, I have no idea what my true calling is. I'm not sure most people do. I don't know my mission, my purpose. I'm a dad and a, and a husband. And so that's kind of my default. I think it's a very common emotion that people struggle with. Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, a psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Do you know what your professional values are? Do you ever feel lost when it comes to the future of your career? Do you feel like you just don't know what you want to be when you grow up? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. You're probably going to spend a lot of your life earning money. And the way you earn money is going to affect your mental strength. But the reverse of that is also true. The amount of mental strength you have will probably affect what kind of work you decide to do. And if you know my story, you know I'm a therapist turned author thanks to a viral article that led to a book deal. But my move from a job as a nine-to-five therapist to becoming an author wasn't planned. The opportunity came to me, which I'm super grateful for. So I was really interested, though, to talk to Scott Jeffrey Miller, who's the author of a book called Career on Course. He talks about the importance of being intentional in our careers, which 
on the surface seemed a little bit contrary to my experience. So I wanted to hear what he has to say. He's written many other popular books, including Job Mess to Career Success and Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. He currently serves as Franklin Covey's Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership, and he hosts the On Leadership podcast. Some of the things he talks about today are why it's important to become intentional about your career, even if you aren't sure what you want to do, the number one thing you should look for when you're applying to a company, and how to get clear on your professional values. So here's Scott Miller on how to get your career on course. Scott Jeffrey Miller, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Amy, it's my honor. Thank you for shining your spotlight onto me and my new book, Career on Course. Absolutely. So in fact, I pulled my audience recently about what they wanted to hear more of. And the number one thing people wanted to talk about was career and career transitions. And it's not something that we've covered a ton of on the show. So when I saw your book, I thought we must have a conversation. And I have to say, though, the the subtitle of your book, your book's called Career on Course. The subtitle is 10 Strategies to Take Your Career from Accidental to Intentional. That especially caught my eye because right on the homepage of my website, I have in big, bold letters that I'm an accidental author. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that have happened in my career have kind of been accidental. I've just been winging it to say I was a therapist in rural Maine who now has a podcast on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. I didn't plan any of this. So when I saw that in there, I thought, well, let's talk about that. Why do you think it is so important to be intentional about our career? Well, I know your story, and I think you have some extenuating circumstances as to why your story became the way it is. Fortunately, I think your journey is an outlier in terms of how you discovered your next steps. That's a compliment, by the way. Thank Um, you. I think most people want more intentional decision-making in their life. I'm not sure people know how. I think they see other people's careers and they're not quite sure what to extrapolate and what they can replicate and what there is their own voice and vision. Should their avocation be their vocation? I'm all for serendipity. I do think there are moments of accidental success or opportunities in everybody's career journey in life. Absolutely. The problem becomes when that's a defining theme. When your entire 30, 40, or quite frankly, 50-year career journey is just a series of episodic movements going here because you were running from there, chasing that or chasing this. When you look back and you think, gosh, had I been more intentional, had I thought not just about what was next, but what was after what was next. That's kind of the premise of the book is to be much more deliberate about your long-term career strategy. Not that everything should be planned out. There, Like I said, there is serendipity. But when I use the word most, and I'll probably use it often in today's interview, I think most people's careers are not well thought through. and It doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. And the more you plan and vision and have goals, the more likely you are to accomplish them. And that makes sense. And in my personal experience, I had the article that went viral that led to the opportunity to write a book. But as a fellow author, you know, writing the book is only a small fraction of the battle. (laughs) Then comes marketing the book and trying to write the next book. So there were certainly things that were intentional and then trying to decide where do I go from here? What else do I do to market the book? And had I not been intentional about many of those steps along the way, I certainly wouldn't be here right now. Beautifully said. Well, you've done a really, really good job. So you set the the standard really high for (laughs) authors who are thinking about accomplishing what's behind your head on those gorgeous covers, by the way. Thank you. 
So in terms of being intentional, though, about our career, something that I'll often hear people say is, you know, I went to college for this thing, and, and now I don't know what else to do or what my options are. Now, I used to teach psychology classes in college, and I taught this class called The Changing Workplace. And one of the big premises of the class was your grandparents' generation, they often stayed in the same position for 50 years. They got the pin for working in a place for 50, 50 solid years before they retired. I think the statistic of how long we're going to stay in a job is like something around five years, perhaps. <laughs> and, we, and we switch yeah. careers and often, I mean, things are unfolding so fast. A lot of the jobs that exist today weren't even opportunities 20 years ago. But how do we, be, how do we take that into consideration as we try to become more intentional about our career path? Well, I think it's situational, which is kind of a convenient answer. You know, you see the pendulum swing back and forth every four or five years, right? Right now, the average tenure for someone in a Fortune 500 company is set, is five years. But on average, outside of that, it's about 18 months. For the younger generation, you're seeing people that will end up having 26, on average, different careers by the time they, quote, retire or aren't, you know, eligible to be relevant in the workplace anymore. I think it, it, it requires all of us to take a little bit of a step back and really ask yourself, what role does the career play in my life? You know, is, is it a big part of my identity? Is it not? Is my avocation my vocation? Is there a means to an end? I mean, for a lot of us, our identities are our careers, especially if we're men and if we're single. That also happens with women as well, too. But you know, I, I tell you, I was married at 41. My career was my entire life. That sounds sad, but it was great. I saw the world and I had discretionary cash and I had a lot of, you know, friends. But it, as I look back now in my life, I kind of think a little bit how pitiful because I don't want my funeral to be just people that I worked with. I want it to be a broader impact than that, although some of my best friends are from my careers. I think it requires us to first recognize that thinking is a legitimate professional activity. And we all should take a breath, sit down. And think about, okay, so what is it I want to accomplish? What brings me joy? Here's a great short story. A few months ago, I was at the U.S. Open with my oldest son and his tennis coach. We all flew up to the U.S. Open. A very accomplished young man, like in his mid-20s. He's actually a tennis coach, but he has an undergraduate aeronautical engineering degree. He wants to be a commercial airline pilot. He's passionate about dentistry, so he does like dentist you know, mission trips. And I, I said to him, have you always picked your careers on what brought you joy and made you happy? And he looked at me in the car like I was crazy. He said, what did you say? I said, now I'm 55 and he's 26. I said, have you always picked your careers based on what brought you joy and what made you happy? He said, well, of course, didn't you? And I said, no, never. No one ever gave me permission, not my parents, not my guidance counselor not myself. I just had to pay the bills and jumped into it and tried to be, you know, deliberate with my decisions after that. But at 55, I still don't know what I want to be and not sure I ever will and try to make the best of it. So that is to say, I think intentionality is easier when we think about it in a long-term strategy and we think carefully through what, you know, does my career need to bring me joy? For some people, it's just nine to five and they want to go, you know, gardening in the evenings. Everybody's career plays a different role in their life. Your listeners and viewers should decide what role does it play for them and then make their career choices, I think, more deliberately. I'm seeing the pendulum swing back to companies now being very suspect about 18-month stints. 
it seemed like in vogue the last six or seven years, it was now kind of normal to have four jobs in six years. You were abnormal if you'd had three jobs in 30 years. Like, what's wrong with you? Why did you stay so long? But now I'm seeing employers being more suspect to say, did you even stay long enough to make an impact? How did you possibly learn the systems, the strategies, the structures, the culture, the politics, the product, the service? How did you add value in 18 months? I think people should be more cautious now as employers are more suspect around sort of opportunistic, self-serving career jumping. I think it's going to come back to bite a lot of people. So one thing you said in there that I want to back up to for a second is, did you say you still don't know what you want to do? I don't know. No idea. So I think a lot of people would be surprised. Like, yeah, but you just wrote this book called Career on Course, and you're telling us you, you don't know what you want to do. Talk about that. Yeah, I'm very comfortable saying that, right? So I went to school and got an undergraduate education and communications, and then I worked for the Walt Disney Company as a project manager, and then they let me go. And then so I moved to the Franklin Covey Company, the world's largest leadership firm, and started selling and then sales management and then marketing and then the CMO and then the EVP of thought leadership. And then I opened a podcast and wrote an ink column. And now I've written seven books and I'm now a talent agent. Mike, the company I own, it actually is a literary speaking and talent agent. Now you might say, well, all that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you went through sales and sales leadership and marketing and product development and podcasting and radio and columnist. I mean, it's not like I was an organic gardener. So it was all kind of in the same space, but I don't, I don't, to this day, I have no idea what my true calling is. I'm not sure most people do. I don't know my mission, my purpose. I'm a dad and a, and a husband. And so that's kind of my default. I think it's a very common emotion that people struggle with is struggle with is what do I want to do? Who am I supposed to be? And what's my career supposed to be? I would argue if you're in that realm of confusion, which I think most people are, I would, I would follow the following process. I think there's two types of um, professionals, specialists and generalists. And I've co-opted this from David Epstein in his genius book, Range. And that is, I was raised, I don't know about you, Amy, I know your story somewhat well, but I was raised in the upper middle class family in the 70s and 80s in Orlando, Florida. And although neither of my parents were college educated, they raised our family based on fear and instability. Most of them were raised in very unstable families. And so my parents valued the badge, like doctor, dental hygienist, engineer, because they valued stability over everything. My brother went on and became a chemical engineer, went to MIT. And what did I do? I did this and that and this and that. It was fairly well planned out in terms of companies and brands and skills, but I never set out to be an author like you, never set out to be a podcaster or a CMO. If you're not a specialist, if you're not one of those kids that raises their hand eighth grade and says, I want to be a veterinarian, which most of us aren't, you're going to be a generalist. And I think the problem with being a generalist is that you're usually living in the comparison conundrum. You're comparing yourselves to the specialist and their clarity, their confidence, education, their earning power. It's very dangerous. Most of the world is comprised of generalists. And I think it's important to know that that's just fine. Be patient. It'll come for you. You might be a little bit of a late bloomer, but if you can strategically knit together some of these episodic skills that you develop intentionally, it's going to come together with you for you. Ask yourself if you're a specialist or a generalist, and neither is good or bad. 
Both are fine, but I'm going to bet the majority of your listeners are probably, would probably categorize themselves as generalists, and they just need a little bit of a permission to give themselves some time and then intentionally knit it together. I'm glad that you said all that because there's so much pressure for a lot of people to say, I know exactly what I want to do with my life. I have this purpose. Here's my meaning. And I agree. Most people really don't know that they're just kind of figuring it out as they go. And maybe I like my job for now. Uh, and that's okay, but I don't really know exactly what's going to happen next, or I'm not really sure if this is what I'm best at or what I would get the most joy out of, but I'm okay with it for now. Let's pause for just a second to get a word from today's sponsor. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. I'll bet you the majority of people would say that. And if that's your case, then don't pick the company, pick the leader. Mm. Don't pick the industry, pick the culture. Because you're going to learn more from your leader than you are from the job. You're going to be more fulfilled by a great leader who mentors you and coaches you, gives you feedback on your blind spots, moves outside of their comfort zone and has high courage conversations on your areas of growth. That is what you want to focus on. And over time, you'll be more clear on what you're great at. I had lunch with Marcus Buckingham, the famous you know, researcher from Gallup. And he said something profound. He said, what most people are great at is not also what they enjoy doing. Mm. I thought, that's a great insight. You might be great at math or great at analytical, you know, strategy creation, but it may not be what you love. And so be thoughtful, be careful that what you're naturally great at, if it's not what brings you joy and pleasure and fulfillment, be careful that doesn't become your career. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes things are just meant to be our uh, side hustle or- a Right. Hobby. Or just, a, just a, 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 an idiosyncrasy talent, right? I mean, how many right. people become accountants and sit for the CPA exam because they're great at math? I'll bet a lot of them. I don't know what percentage there is of job satisfaction in accountancy. I'll bet it's less than organic gardening. Right. And there may be people that, that love to garden, but they don't want it to be their job. That's just what they like to do right. uh, to relax in the evenings right. and on the weekends. Amen. Amen. I'm glad that you talked about that with leadership, but how do you pick a job based on a leader? You go in for the interview and they, of course, oh. tell you all these glowing things about their company, but how do you really figure out if that's going to be the job for you based on what the leaders might be like. Well, this I think is quite easy. I mean, I do think one of the benefits that's come from Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the social justice and the pandemic and 
our recession is it has put more power into the hands of employees and interviewees. Not all the power, but there's been more of a balance, more of a balance of power, a shifting of power. So I think it's very appropriate during interviews to ask, you know, ask, you know, typically the question that the leader asks the interviewee is, tell me a time when you had a disagreement with someone and how did you resolve that conflict? You know what? Ask the leader. Tell me about someone who quit me and quit you and why did they quit you? Why, why did someone quit you? And before you say there wasn't someone, I'm sure there was. I mean, everybody's been quit before. I'd love to know why someone quit you so that I can just understand how to deal with that. I think the leader ought to be open to answering that question. If someone asked me that question, I'd have seven reasons why people quit me. Because I don't want to lure you into a job where you're not going to like my loud, charismatic, kind of uh, in-charge style, right? I'm going to give you a lot of latitude but I'm also going to give you a massive amount of real-time feedback to keep you on course. And if that's not right for you, then this isn't going to work. I think you can do lots of research, right? Go onto LinkedIn and find people that have reported to that person. Ask around in the company. Ask, can you interview five people in the division alone? And if someone says no, say wrong place for me, right? Because the fact of the matter is for most of us, again, there's the word most of us, the phrase, you're going to spend more time with the leader you work with and your colleagues, and you will awake with your family members. And that's a that's a horrifying and eye-opening thought. It really I, is, uh, right? And we know from the research that sometimes the people who end up in leadership positions are not necessarily oh, the best leaders. And you talk about this that, in your book too, that's right? The most, that's, that's the most gracious understatement you've said, right? <laughs> I mean, the fact is we know that the vast majority of leaders were simply promoted because they were the most competent individual contributor and, and good for them. There's a lot of bad leaders that aren't bad people. I think we make that mistake. Most people have been promoted over their level of confidence, competence into leadership because it's the only career track for most people. And we know that the competency to be the best supermarket checkout clerk has no correlation to leading 24 supermarket checkout clerks. There's zero correlation in that. So I think the best criteria for you in your career, unless you know exactly what your progression is, is to pick your leader with great care. Like because they're that. going to become your champion. They're going to become right. your detractor. They're going to become your worst nightmare. They're going to become the best source of feedback on your blind spots that you ever had access to. Choose wisely. I agree. And I think the people that we work with make all the difference. I think sometimes it doesn't really matter what you do for work or what company you work for. It's the people in addition to the leader, the coworkers that you have. And I hear a lot of people say it doesn't matter who you work with or pick people that you don't necessarily agree with and that sort of a thing. Like the cool thing about being self-employed is I get to pick firsthand who I work with and who I don't most of the time. Sometimes I get hired to do contract work or something like that, and they aren't the people I would particularly enjoy. But I find that to be one of the biggest benefits of having the lifestyle that I have now is I get to pick. And if somebody's not an amazing or kind person, I don't necessarily have to work with them. I think, again, you are a fortunate outlier, but I mean that as a compliment. You've lived your life with great deliberation you know, since you've suffered some tragedy and showed enormous courage and also great, uh, great ability to build a brand around your competency. I think you are such a great model of people. 
that want to become, that want to turn a disappointment into an appointment, in your case, a tragedy. Uh, in my book, Career on Course, the first strategy is to define your professional values. I'll tell you, I've caught some heat on this from, quote, self-described value experts, because I argue you ought to have two sets of values, personal, professional. And people are taking me down on the, in, the, in the social sphere every day because they say, no, you don't only have one set of values. And I just argue differently. I said, I think you ought to have personal values, which I do, and professional values. By the way, you can call them two lists within one set. I don't care. But I have a set of professional values. It's the lens through which I make all my career decisions. My number one professional value is to maximize my earning. My number two professional value is to work with a company and an organization and a brand that I'm proud of. And three is to work with people that I like and love and who like and love me. Now, I could have had my number one value be maximize income and go become a hedge fund manager, right? Or a mortgage broker or a stockbroker or an anesthesiologist. I don't know, pick a higher earning career. But it's not my only value. My second and third value are very much around a company and brand that I respect and people that I love and like. I was married when I was 41. My wife and I had 98 guests at our wedding. 60 of them were colleagues from the Franklin Covey Company. My wife was like, what the heck, Miller? You have no friends? Seriously? <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a corporate retreat. I said, these are my best friends. To your point, I love and care for these people. These people have forgiven me so many times. It's incredible. These people care about my welfare, my mental health my professional career. They have my back. They're loyal to me. I drive them crazy. They forgive me. And so to your point, I think everyone should be very deliberate around the types of people that they work with and choose very carefully. Take the time when you read the book to do the exercise around listing out your personal and professional values so you also know when they are in conflict. I see so many people's careers that are have gone into a cul-de-sac. Well, my my professional number one value is maximize my income. What's your career? I'm in sales. What's your number one value? Oh, family. My grandfather, my grandmother are still alive and they have 10 more years left. Well, you're never going to maximize your income if you're in sales because you need to be on the road. If you're not a plane or in a car, you know, you're going to have to move around the nation, right? And pick up new jobs. Your values are in conflict and that's okay. But you may need to have your number one professional value change while you're honoring this other personal value because our values change with our roles. And that's the gift I think I'm giving in the first chapter of the book is to have people do the work to identify both. I'll give you an example too. My sister is a therapist and for many years we had adjoining offices in rural Maine. And a lot of people didn't know we were sisters because we have different last names and we don't particularly look that much alike these days. But and then I started writing books and doing other things. And so sometimes people will say to me, like, what's your sister think of that? Does she ever get jealous? You get to do all this cool stuff. And my answer is absolutely not. She, in fact, just over Christmas, I saw her and she said to me, your job is so tough. Like you don't get to turn it off at five o'clock. I come home and my day's over. Yours isn't. You might have to still do some marketing for your book or still work on some things. She's like, I don't check my laptop once I step away from the office. She has a family and a house and lives a much more traditional life. She values a paycheck that she knows exactly what's going to be in that paycheck on Friday. We have the same college education. We graduated from the, the same schools, yet two very different ideas on how to live our best lives with that. And that we've gone in two very different directions because our values about what's important to us professionally is, is a bit different. 
Amy, I think my experience has been extraordinarily few people have ever identified or written down their personal values, let alone their professional values. I think most people, if you ask them, what are your values? They'd say something, uh, honesty, integrity, trustworthy, faith in God, whatever. And then the next month, they'd give you three of those four things that are like. But this book, Career and Course, deliberately kind of tells you nothing else matters. First, you need to set down, identify your personal values and then your professional values. And when those are clear, a whole world of clarity opens up to you about the type of organization, the kind of roles, the style of culture. Do your, do your skills align well in this or that company or industry? I implore people, take the time to identify both sets so that you know if they are in conflict, which one should rule out over the other. And I know that we all sort of have a visceral reaction when somebody says that, like, come down with your values, write them down, pick them, because we think, how do I pick? How do I really pick what's more important? But I agree. And as a therapist, we do value exercises all the time, because once you get clear on what's really important, it becomes easier to you. You get offered a promotion, but it's going to be a two-hour extra commute. What's more important to you? Or uh, you have another opportunity, but it's in a different different building, and you're going to leave the people you work with what's more important to you? How do you make those decisions? So thank you for doing that. I think that's a great exercise in your book. And it goes to sort of another point that you make in our book is about our self-awareness and how we all assume we're incredibly self-aware. And even if you ask people, are you more self-aware than the average person? Like 90% of people would say, absolutely. And then we think, well, I don't need to do anything else to increase our self-awareness, but obviously we do sometimes, right? Tasha Urich wrote, I think, the best book on this topic called Insight. If someone wants to learn more about the science and the art of building your self-awareness, I highly recommend Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H, her book Insight. In my 30-year career, I have had the honor of interviewing hundreds, 600, 800 people for job prospects. And I've had the honor and privilege of hiring, I don't know, probably about 140 people. And I've had the duty of terminating, I think, maybe close to 25 people or so. And I tell everybody, I have never fired someone because they lacked the technical competence to do the job. They had the training, the certificate, the degree, the license, the credential. They had it. They could do the job. They wouldn't do the job. They lacked self-awareness. They had no idea what it was like to be interviewed by them on a podcast. He had no idea what it was like to be in a meeting with them or stand at a trade show booth or go for a walk around the block or be on a pickleball team. Most people, and and I'm intentionally using this phrase over and over again, the vast majority of people are delusional about what it is like to be in a relationship with them, married to them, roommates with them, live next door to them, be led by them, buy from them, sell to them. If you want to build your career, you will recognize that you have a sliver of self-awareness of what you need. Here's a great example. I am a loud, energetic, almost indefatigable, sometimes called charismatic, charismatic person. That works for about a third of the audience. When I'm giving a keynote or doing an interview, I repel about a third of people. <laughs> Repel them, repulse them. Because, you know, is he ever going to stop? Does he talk all the time? Why does he talk so loud? I mean, this is my natural voice level. Perhaps your producer is going to modify it, but 
when I'm in the car with my wife going to dinner, she's like, why are you screaming at me? You're like two feet away. Hun, this is my natural voice. She's like, well, I don't like it. Stop it. And so when I lower my voice and breathe, take some time. Now, some of your listeners are actually liking me for the first time in this 30-minute conversation. You get the point. Even with my own naturally ingrained style, sometimes it's such default behavior that I don't even know I'm doing it. And it's having a really deleterious impact on my brand and my career trajectory. I plead with your listeners and viewers to start asking people, hey, what do I do that delights you? And what do I do that annoys you? Mm. And when they tell you, don't say, yeah, but Amy's not, you know, this and Amy did that and Amy does that. No, 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 no. Don't deflect it. Don't deny it. Don't dispute it. Don't refute it. Just be quiet. Listen, write it down. And then say, hey, you know, that is so valuable. Can I tell you, that actually hurt a little bit. But thank you for caring enough about me to say that to me. I, I feel like you have my best interest at heart. Can I ask you a couple of questions, Amy? When I do that, do you know why I'm doing that? Do I seem insecure? Do I seem in over my head? Am I feeling unconfident? You're not a psychiatrist. In your, in your case, you're pretty close to one. But you, you know, what do you think I'm doing here? Why? You'll learn so much about yourself. And then it's up to you whether or not you choose to course correct. But you've got to make it safe for people to give you feedback on your blind spots if you have any hope of increasing your self-awareness. Ooh, that's a tough thing to do, but I agree. And it's so easy sometimes to, to notice those things in other people, and then we have those blind spots within ourselves. As a therapist, I'll have somebody come into my office and they'll talk about how they're always the most reliable, trustworthy person out there. Meanwhile, I can then easily point out to them, well, you've always been at least 15 minutes late for your therapy appointments. How might other people experience you, even though you see yourself as reliable if you're always late for things? And it's really easy to point that out. But then it also makes us wonder, like, what do I do that other people don't see? So I love that idea of being brave enough to ask somebody that you trust and somebody that will be honest with you to give you some of that feedback. Let's pause for just a second to get a word from today's sponsor. Easier said than done. Yep. As the person looking for the feedback, you have to make it safe for other people to tell you their truth. It might be that you send someone an email. I don't usually advocate this, but it might be, hey, Amy, I'm really trying to improve my brand around the office. I'm guessing there are some things that I'm doing that you have seen that have injured my brand. I would love it if you would take a couple of days and think about it and send me an email. I'm giving you carte blanche. I really want your feedback. I'd love it if you could even give me some examples of it. And, 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 and please know that I'm going to accept it in a gracious way and know that you have my best interest at heart. Maybe you take someone for coffee. Maybe you ask someone face-to-face. You've got to understand what is the circumstance in which someone else would feel comfortable giving you some feedback and not feel like you're going to retaliate or dismiss it or get angry or punish them or make them feel bad for being vulnerable. Just because you ask for it does not mean someone's going to give it, especially if you have a reputation of dismissing it or disputing it or just saying, yeah, that's just the way I am. Who would, who would jump into the deep end of that pool? Nobody. So you've got to make it safe where other people feel like you generally are interested and that you're going to work on it. Because if you ask Amy for feedback and she risks giving it to you, and then you say, thank you so much, 
and then she's she sees you either dismiss it or not change, then she'll say she'll still think, well, that was useless. But if you want to build and turn Amy from your from your detractor into your champion, ask Amy. Go ask the people who don't like you. Go ask the people who are your challengers. Give me some feedback and then let them catch you changing. Let them see you stop gossiping, being on time, making keeping commitments, not, not divulging comp, you know, confidences. And then Amy, the next time Amy's in a conversation and someone is talking about you perhaps negatively, Amy's going to say, you know, that used to be my impression of Scott, but you know, six months ago, he asked me some, for some feedback and I gave it to him. And to my surprise, he not only handled it really well, but I have seen him dramatically change his behavior. I think you ought to give him a second chance. This doesn't happen overnight. But if you want to transform your brand, let people catch you changing and they will become your biggest ambassadors and champions. And then can you explain a little bit about that? Because you keep using the phrase your brand. And I think a lot of people think you only need a brand if you are an entrepreneur with a private business and you're selling a product or a service. Yeah. Yeah. Do you talk about having your, your own brand at a company or at an office? Well, everybody has a brand, um, either intentional or accidental. You know, you have a brand, whether you've tried to or not. Maybe your brand is you look people in the eye. Maybe your brand is you write thank you notes. Maybe your brand is you always raise your hand first in the meeting. Maybe your brand is you always are very thoughtful and contemplative and you raise your hand last in the meeting. Maybe your brand is your batting average is three out of 10 versus three out of three. Everybody has a brand and your brand is probably different than you think it is. That's why these are in order in the book, right? Studying yourself I believe is, is strategy three, which is basically self-awareness. And then building your brand comes later in the book. Everyone has a brand that they have created for themselves, either intentionally for good or bad, or accidentally for good or bad. And how you see your brand is likely very different than how other people see your brand. And it may be different than how you want your brand. So every strategy in the book has a concept and a pretty rigorous worksheet to work through. These worksheets aren't things you do in 30 minutes. These are things that take, you know, hours and days and sometimes weeks, but comprehensively can change the entire trajectory. In this particular setting, this has three columns. What do you think your brand is? I think I invite people to interview three people on what do others say your brand is and what do you want your brand to be and what behaviors do you need to employ to make that happen. And also, is your brand honored and valued in the company? You may not want to change your brand. You might be a bull in a china shop, and that's great at a more entrepreneurial, fast-paced company, but you probably shouldn't work for the Baptist church. Probably not going to work for you, right? I mean, I'm not a Baptist, right. but I'm guessing, you know, they're probably a more law and orderly kind of group of people. All power to the Baptists. You may be happy with your brand and it may not be working for you in the right in the company you're in, which may be the wrong culture for you. I think it's a great exercise to build some reality around what is the brand you've created for yourself, accidentally or deliberately. Is that how others perceive it? Is it working for you? And could it work for you better or or differently in some other organization? And then what's the big payoff in the end? We do all of these things in your book. We start working on ourselves. What's our best hope for uh, what could happen? Oh, I think less regrets. You know, perhaps no regrets. 
Um, I know a lot of generalists that have ended their careers with just a bevy of sort of episodic information and skills, but they, they never had the ability to kind of crochet it together. My grandmother crocheted and, and, and like make a brand for themselves that someone would pay more money for. And then there are those that people that are generalists or for that matter, specialists that said, Hey, you know, what I have learned, who I have met, how I have grown, what I have earned, what I have saved has just the wisdom I've gained has been super valuable. I think this book helps people look back on their careers with less frustration and angst to say, wow, you know, I worked a lot of different places and that was good, but man, imagine had I been a little more deliberate, right? Maybe I had, maybe I shouldn't have jumped for $2 more an hour, or maybe I shouldn't have jumped from this because the grass was greener, or I'm so glad I jumped from that to this because it put me on a whole new path. Um, and I think the concepts transition over to your life as a parent, as a lover, as a partner, as a friend, as a neighbor, neighbor, as a shuffleboard partner, just to be a little more intentional about how you interact, what you say. I'm a pretty impulsive, impetuous person, and it's gotten me uh, in a lot of trouble in life. And so in many ways, I've kind of written my, this book for my previous self. I love all of that because I think we could so easily just be kind of passive about what happens to us in life, what opportunities come our way without really jumping on the ones that we really want to jump on and saying no to the things that don't really make sense for us. So I think you've given us a wonderful roadmap for that about I'm all about intentional living in lots of different areas of our lives and figuring out how do you make sure that you you do have a, a path that you're on and yet you're still open to those opportunities in the event something unexpected comes along, like the opportunity to write a book. Can I pay you a final compliment? Please do. It's me not pandering to the host. Because like <laughs> I'm also a host in another life. I think you have been such a great model for teaching people how to disrupt themselves, how to have confidence in themselves when perhaps others didn't, how to take calibrated risks and make them... Uh, more bold as you move forward. I think you've done such a great job of building a brand. I mean, look behind you. You have these six books now? Six, yeah. Six books and these beautiful colors and this interesting title. It's a little bit counterintuitive. And you've chosen to, like Dr. Covey, like, you know, take the number seven, you've taken the number 13, and you've built this great brand around it. But you're really true to what your, your, your expertise is and your own journey. I think there is so much to learn from your career. You're podcasting, you're keynoting, you're writing, you write columns, you write blogs, you're on social, you have workbooks and sessions. You've really shown people how to disrupt themselves before the world disrupts them because they will. The fact is you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. The door is closed, the blinds are closed, and somebody else is deciding your career for you. And it was that quote that really motivated me to write this book is, I don't want somebody else deciding my career. If I'm going to get fired, I'm going to fire myself first. If I'm, if I'm throwing out my welcome, I want to be aware of that so that I'm in control of my career. I don't want someone else deciding it for me. And I think in many ways, you've been such a great model of that with your own brand as an entrepreneur. You deserve all your success. Well, thank you so much for saying all that. I really appreciate it. It's an honor hearing that um, come from you. So thank you. Where's the best place for our listeners to, to learn more about you and your work? So right here in this podcast, where else would you go? Duh. <laughs> uh, you know, you can find me 
uh, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, X, Facebook, LinkedIn, everywhere. You can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. All of my books are um, sold by all retailers worldwide in many languages. You can Google Scott Jeffrey Miller and you can find me pretty much anywhere to my wife's horror. (laughs) (laughs) We will link to you in our show notes so that people will uh, be able to find you exactly on the internet and they can also just Google you. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your wisdom. Honor is mine. Welcome to The Therapist Take. Let's break down Scott's strategies for staying mentally strong at work. Here are three of my favorite strategies that he shared. Number one, be intentional about your long-term career strategy. I was relieved when Scott said even he doesn't know exactly what he wants to do for a career. Initially, I was kind of afraid he was going to say you had to know exactly what you want to do and then go after it. But he made it clear that it's not about knowing the exact career. It's just about being intentional about your career strategy. That's wise because the job market is changing so fast these days that it's unrealistic for most people to pick a career at 22 and then still be doing that exact same thing 45 years later. Most of the jobs that are around today didn't exist 20 years ago. So keep that in mind. You don't have to be intentional about your exact career, but be intentional about the type of work you do or the type of subject you want to work with. There are tons of things that you could do with the same skill set. In my case, I like teaching people about mental health. Initially, I was doing that one-on-one in a therapy office. Now I get to write articles about mental health. I get to have this podcast. I get to speak on big stages and teach a lot of the same skills I was teaching people when I was one-on-one in the therapy office, but there are lots of different ways to use my skills to, to earn a living. So keep that in mind that you don't have to know exactly what you want to do or what kind of job you want to have, but you can still be intentional about the career steps that you take and the kind of work that you do. And number two, look for a company with a good leader. This one's interesting to me because I have found it difficult to know a lot about a company's leadership before accepting a job. Even if you ask the current employees, they might not throw the boss under the bus when they're currently working for that person, right? At least probably not. They may not want to tell somebody who's applying, like, hey, our boss is actually not very good at managing people. May not be a wise career move for them. But I agree, it's important to investigate the leadership because that's gonna have a huge impact on your mental health. Even if you have an amazing job or you make a lot of money, a poor leader could make the whole thing miserable for you. Do as much due diligence as you can to research the leadership of a company. And that may mean asking a lot of questions during your interview, talking to people if you can, or just doing some online research. There are those companies that offer anonymous reviews where employees can talk about their company and about their experience. Obviously, take those with a grain of salt because most of those are anonymous, so we have no idea who's leaving those reviews. But you might see some patterns if you do your research. And number three, ask for feedback on your personal brand. This requires some courage, but it could be quite eye-opening. As an author, I get tons of feedback from readers and editors. I have to say, when my first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, came out, I had a lot of people saying things like, wow, your advice is really direct, and I really like your straight-up approach. 
And obviously I wrote a book about what mentally strong people don't do, not because I thought I was beating around the bush. I knew I was direct, but I believe now my readers find me to be more direct than, than I think that I am. And that was interesting for me. And I think it was a good thing to learn because I certainly don't want to come across as if I'm lecturing people or that I'm condescending or anything like that. And I always keep in mind an article that I wrote for Forbes a few years back, and it was about a study where they had two people negotiate about something, and they, these people were strangers. And after the negotiation, they would ask each person, in this negotiation, were you a jerk or more like a pushover? And then they would ask the other person to rate them. Did you find your partner to be a jerk or a pushover? And almost all the time, people disagreed. The person who said, you know, I felt like I was kind of a pushover in this negotiation. Often, their partners would say, actually, you were kind of a jerk during this. And these were strangers, so they had nothing to lose by actually sharing their opinion. So I don't think we need to tailor our behavior to the people around us, but getting that feedback from people can help us know, oh, okay, the way that I think I present myself might not be the way that a lot of other people perceive me. So if you're going to ask for other people's opinions, though, just make sure it's the people that you value their opinion, that you find people who you respect. A lot of companies these days have annual performance reviews or six-month reviews, and it's often just about slapping something on a piece of paper rather than getting really helpful feedback. At least that's been my experience in companies where there were these performance reviews that felt canned and kind of forced. And I don't know that people were really sharing honest feedback. It was often you have four hours to fill out this piece of paper and you have to also fill it out on 12 of your coworkers. So it was more rushed and it really wasn't about getting helpful feedback. So if you're brave, ask people whose opinions you value to, to really give you some feedback. So those are three strategies that you can try to get your career on course. Be intentional about your career Make leadership the most important factor when you're looking for a job and ask for feedback on your personal brand. To hear more of Scott's tips, check out his book, Career on Course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to the Mentally Stronger podcast. As always, if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. It's one of the best ways to help us get our show in front of people so that we can make the world a stronger place. And if you want more tips on building mental strength, subscribe to Mentally Stronger Premium. You get weekly bonus episodes and exclusive extras for being a premium subscriber. Sign up at mentallystronger.supercast.com. Click on the link in the show notes. And if you know somebody who could benefit from learning more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, whose career collided with mine when he was hired by my publisher to record my third audiobook. Nick Valentine.